in a series called It's Not Your Treasure to Bury. On our opening, on our opening Sunday this, this year, we read the two parables that relate to this. And, and really, there's the parable of the minas and there's the parable of the talents. And if those words mean nothing to you, basically, here's what happened. Jesus tells these two parables, these two stories that come alongside and teach us. That's what parable means. And that he tells these two, and he says to, so a man goes away, and, and before he leaves, he takes 10 coins and gives them to one servant, and five coins, give them to another servant, and one coin, and gives them to the final servant. And then he goes away, and they are to go out and do the business he has called them to do. And one goes out, and he takes those 10 coins, and he doubles them. And the one with the five, he goes out and he doubles them. And the one that has the one, he takes that and he buries it in the ground. And Jesus says, now when that man comes back, and this is what he sees, and this is what he hears. He says, he'll look at the one who has doubled the ten and now has 20 coins. And say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little, I will give you more. He says the same thing to one who doubled the five and now has 10 coins. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I will give you more. But then he turns to the one who took the coin and buried it. And he said, what have you done? And he says, listen, I knew you were a harsh man. That you reap where you don't sow. And so I was afraid and I buried it. And he says, you're a wicked servant. And I'm going to take what I gave you and I'm going to give it to somebody else. And he says, listen, this is what we're to do. So every, the premise of this, as Jesus tells these two parables, there's little distinctions in each one, but they tell the same story. That what you have been given, you've been given by God, and what you have been given is to be used for God. That what you have been given, whether it be your job, your talent, your income, your home, your, your time, whatever it is, that it's to honor God. And that what all those things are, are things that God wants to use to build his kingdom through you here in the local church. And so last week we talked about that God has given us an income. And if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't have breath in our lungs. And if it wasn't for God, we wouldn't have the talent or skills to have that job. We wouldn't, really, seriously, if it wasn't for God, there's no way I'd have brain cells left after the entire 80s and 90s, right? So God bless him, man, here I am. Right? So I owe everything to God, but he doesn't want all my money. He wants 10%. He wants me to steward all of it really well. He wants me to be wise. He, not, he just wants me to not be in debt, but he also wants me to fund ministry. That he's given me gifts and talents, and he doesn't want me to just go, you know, make an income out of that or make a life out of that or build my name, but he wants me to use that for the kingdom. He's given us all the same amount of time. We're to give some of it to the kingdom. That we're to rethink these things that we, that we think we possess and realize they're not ours, but they're God's who's given them to us, and we're to use them well. So a main idea today is kind of get us started in this message. Next slide. Jesus commands us to love one another. We are to bind ourselves together in community in the local church for the one another's in Scripture, like love one another, right? It is impossible to be a faithful Christian apart from being in community. So hear me when I say this. It is impossible to be a faithful Christian without being in community. Jesus, when he spoke, gave it to plural people, right? His disciples in a community, even the larger group of 72 that seemed to follow him around, the thousands in a crowd. Even Jesus, all the way at the end of the New Testament, as he speaks from his ascended glory, as he speaks to John, he speaks to the seven churches, not to John. 
Even those churches that can't seem to get anything right, and he deals with that, he still speaks through the church. That Jesus speaks to a community of believers. Yes, he wants to speak to you. Yes, he wants to lead you. Yes, he wants to guide you independently. But he does that also in the idea that you are to be a part of a community. You are to love one another as I have loved you. And this is how people will know you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. Impossible to fulfill that on your own. So we would say that the best way you can do that, because again, like I just said, it's not like we're a giant church. We're larger than the average church in America. We don't feel like that because we're in Southern California because you can't throw a rock and not hit a giant church, right? But even in this, just I, man, I have a hard time just getting names down, right? Nevertheless, being able to love you and know you and know your needs and know your wants and know your gifts, and you can't possibly, not everybody know me. See, the only way to, to, to grow larger and, and build communities to grow smaller and do small groups. And so what we call community groups are groups that meet in homes, that live in neighborhoods, that gather together to live out all the one another's in Scripture like love one another. So again, our community group leaders will be out there. They've got a list of them. You can look at kind of the nights they are, if they have childcare or don't where they meet, what night they meet, and you can figure out how you can fit into a small group community. We will multiply those. We will have more come April so that they will be a different variety of options and, and needs and, and areas and times. But it is imperative that we understand that our job is to love one another. So Acts 2, we're going to pick up starting in verse 36 if you're in Acts 2. And here's Peter speaking, and, and, and to give you some context, Jesus has spoken to them. He has told them, you'll be my witnesses here to the outside communities beyond you, and then to the ends of the earth. This is what your job is, to be my witnesses. Go tell people about me, but wait here until I fill you with my spirit. I will give you the power to do what I've called you to do, and that's important for us to hear. Whatever God calls us to do, he empowers us to do. And when you're empowered, then you'll go and do this. And so they wait on him, and then Jesus empowers them after the ascension. He fills them with his spirit. Peter walks outside and begins to preach to a crowd of thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews that are in Jerusalem for a feast. Peter says this, and we're picking up late in his speech, but he says this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, meaning Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I know it's kind of a crazy starting point, but everything in community starts with the gospel. And so understand Peter is sharing the gospel with a crowd of thousands in Jerusalem. And he shares about the life and the death and the resurrection. He shares a very pointed gospel this Jesus you crucified, right? Because he's in Jerusalem where they crucified him under this leadership. This Jesus you crucified, God raised from the dead. Like the very thing you did, God trumped by raising him from the dead. You're so against where God is right now that God overcame what you did and did the exact opposite. You need to get on the page, really? And Peter just shares this gospel. That God created them. They know that already. They're, they're Jewish. They believe in God. That God loves them. They believe that too. 
But the humanity has sinned and separated themselves from God. They believe that too. They don't necessarily take that very seriously about themselves, but they believe that humanity is separated from God by sin. And that God has given them things to do to cover the sin, but all those things pointed forward to the Messiah to come. The problem in Judaism 2,000 years ago is that Jesus, they were jealous of Jesus functionally, right? That, that people were flocking to him and, and to John the Baptist who came and said, listen, the Messiah is coming. This is the one that scriptures have told us about. And there becomes a power struggle. And Jesus is most critical of the religious people. He is seriously kind and generous and calm with people that are deeply sinful, Murderers, thieves, adulterers, I mean, just all kinds of people, tax collectors, which were the most unloved people in community, worse than the IRS, really, seriously, right? But he was incredibly kind and generous. He was brutal on the religious leadership because they had really rejected God and made their own thing, and they were more, they were more given to doing their thing than it was to honoring God, and that's how they missed Jesus. So Peter tells them, listen, he lived a sinless life in accordance with the scriptures. Now he's speaking to a Jewish community, so they were deeply ingrained in scriptures where they would know this, and that he died a death to cover their sin as scripture promised. When we get back into the book of Isaiah and finish it, we will pick up in one of the clearest proclamations of the crucifixion in the Old Testament, and it happened hundreds of years before Jesus was born, that they knew that a Messiah would come and he must die for them. And that God resurrected him, Jesus, who they, the Jewish leadership, had put to death. And that that Jesus had empowered them and ascended back to heaven because he is both God and Savior. This man whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ, Peter says. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They hear that God has done this, that Jesus has lived and died and rose again, asserting that he is both God and Savior, and that Jesus in human form has ascended back to heaven to take his place on the throne rightly. And they say, what do we do? I believe you. If you're sitting here today and you've never heard the gospel, it's one of God's love. That God wants to bridge the gap of your sin and my sin. And that he did that through Jesus who lived perfectly and died in our place. And that he rose from the grave, not that we could just be forgiven, but in his resurrection that we too can have new life. Right? And, and I, not something that's about me, but again, consider the years of addiction and the years of, of all the crime and all the things that led to being in and out of jail and in and out of prison, all the things that were me. Forgiveness would have meant like God's not going to hold that against me. Resurrection means I get to be this me. That I get to be entirely different. To know me today is not even a, it's even hard to see some of that. Minus the tattooing and some history, it's hard to see it. Because I'm just not that person anymore. And you don't have to be whatever it is that defines you in, in, in the worst terms. You don't have to be that. The resurrection gives new life. That's the gospel. So Peter preaches this gospel to this crowd of thousands. And many, tons of them, respond, what do we do? So we've been off track all this time. 
What do we do? Brothers, what shall we do? Let me give you a note on the screen. This series is built on the premise that true belief in Jesus requires more than just mental assent to a set of facts. Let me pause there. Faith in Jesus is more than just believing that someone named Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead. That's not being a follower of Jesus, right? Faith, belief, if you believe that, you will figure out, okay, what does that mean for my life? It's not just mental assent to something that is true, but it's then taken into our hearts and it causes us to respond. So it's not just mental assent to a set of facts, rather true faith will reshape how we see life including how we view and use the things we have been given by God. It will take every part of your life and begin to reshape it. It will cause you to see things differently. In this series particularly, we're talking about what God has given us. We will quit thinking it's just ours. And that really it's his. And that we're, we're just a vessel then to use it as he calls us to. And some of that is for enjoyment. And some of that is from ministry, and some of that is to pay your bills. And some of that is to leave an inheritance for your children, or whatever it might be. Some of that is to get a job and make an income so you can have a home. Some of that is to then take those same skills and maybe use them in the context of a ministry. Some of those is to then come alongside the church, and maybe your skill set blesses someone else in need, and them you. It causes you to reshape how you view everything. That's their response. Okay, what do we do then? Here's Peter's answer. Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first step of faith, the first thing you do when you believe in Jesus, you respond and get baptized. That's the thing you do. That's what Peter says. What do we do? Now, it's bigger than that. Jews weren't baptized. Jews baptized non-Jewish people. It was a symbol of you're an unclean people, and you want to become like us. First, you must be cleansed, and then there are other covenant things that they would do. Peter is telling them, listen, you have to identify yourself as an outsider from God, and you need to come inside. You do that by being baptized. Our, as Christians, first step of obedience is baptism. We decide, okay, I want to follow Jesus. Then he says, listen, repent and be baptized. But he doesn't stop there and say, I'm going to forgive you of your sin. But he also says, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. So I want you to think through this for a minute. Jesus says, if you're baptized, then I'm going to pour my spirit out on you. I'm going to, I'm going to fill you with the very spirit that's inside of me. I'm going to equip you for the life and the ministry that I've called you to. And yes, I mean ministry, all of us, not just those who vocationally do it. Consider it this way. First, God has loved us so much that he gave us his son in Jesus. Second, Jesus has loved us so much. God the son has loved us so much that he gave his entire life to us. Not only did he get down off the throne and become human and live and die and raise again, he did it willingly. He died for us. And then, as a promise of baptism, he has given us his spirit. The Holy Spirit is then in us. Jesus says, it's better that I go away so that I can give you the Holy Spirit. 
The only thing better than Jesus right here in the midst of the room with us is Jesus inside of us all. That's the promise of baptism that parallels and goes alongside forgiveness, that I will empower you to live in that new life. So God gives, Jesus gives, the Holy Spirit is given to us to give us the power to new life. All that while asking nothing from us but to respond. So when we look at us giving back to God, understand it's always us giving as a response. Whether it's your finances, your time, your skills, whether it's community that we talk about today, your love of one another, it's always giving back to the God who's been giving to you all along. You see, faith isn't just a mental assent to a set of facts about Jesus, but it reshapes how we view everything. Verse 39, Peter goes on. He says, For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Consider this immediate outward focus. Hey, it's not just for you. In fact, we're going to, call, we're going to put you on the team and you're going to join us in reaching the world with this. The spirit in you is not just to overcome the sin in you, but to move you outward towards others. This is for you, and it's for your children, and for those who are far off that you don't know and don't look like or don't sound like. It's for them too. And we're, we're bringing you in to be a part of that. Just consider that God's gifts are for more than just us. He's thinking down the line of all the future believers that will follow Jesus He's thinking about them in that moment. He prayed for them in John 17, what they call his high priestly prayer. Jesus has prayed for them. He's prayed for us. He's taught his disciples that it's about this, that it's about those that are not there yet. I love that quote from Julius Caesar. He says, there's more of Rome out there. They just don't know it yet. Now, granted, he's going to go conquer them, and it's a little different. There are more believers out there, there are more Christians out there, there's more followers of Jesus out there. Some of them just don't know it yet. And maybe you're here now and you just don't identify as a follower of Jesus yet. Maybe, maybe you are, you just don't know it yet. But that's what God has placed us here for, that we could be a part of that. Verse 40, it says, In many other words, he bore witness, this is Peter, bearing witness to the crowd, and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. He says, Save yourself. Because the people you're with are running headlong into hell. Even the ones that think they're honoring God who crucified Jesus, they're running away from God, not towards God. He says, save yourself from that. Turn to Jesus. Repent. Baptized. Be filled with his spirit. Come follow Jesus. He is God who lived and died and rose again. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Take the weight of that in for a minute. This is mass conversion in the city of Jerusalem, known for its Judaism, known for people who believe they love God, but have really found themselves on the outside of God. That's true in much of America. That's true in many of people in the church today. Our church, every church. To think, well, because I show up and I go to church, that makes me on the inside with God. And really what Jesus is saying, no, you're not. And Peter is saying, listen, I, I get that you think you are, but here's the truth about God. Here's the truth about Christ. And here's how God validated Christ with the resurrection. And then he has filled us and called us to tell you, repent, turn around from that. Be baptized. Let God fill you with his spirit and forgive you. And then come and join the mission. Those who re received his word were baptized 
And we're added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people came to faith in this moment. Just wrestle with that for a minute. Because the church that existed at the time was smaller than this church. There were about 120 people that called it home. And as they were gathered together in prayer, by the way, I've tried to get us together to pray, never does everybody show up. Never does half of everybody show up. We're lucky if we get a fraction. But the church gathers together and prays. And this kind of outcome happens. We'll talk about prayer in this series as well. 3,000 people. Just imagine adding that to us. The command is, love one another as I have loved you. You two will love one another, and this is how people will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Well, it just went from 120 people that gathered together to pray to 3,120 people in round numbers. And the command is to love them. The first thing they're confronted with is how. How do we do this? Verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, if you're in your Bible, I want you to look at that. There's a couple things. One, the language, devoted, is very strong language. It's not like they flirted with this thing. They devoted themselves to this, right? And this is a common passage. Most of you know this passage. This is super common, right? Listen to this. What did they devote themselves? And I just need you to look at Scripture for a minute because it's written kind of, the, the language construction here is a little different. The answer that they're devoted to is to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, comma, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We lose this in English for the most part because our English skills are not super goodly, all right? <laughs> I learned Latin in high school for a year, and then forgot it the next year, but, um, and then picked it up again in seminary, right, and learned Greek in seminary, and my first year, I remember that, learning Greek taught me English, literally, legitimately taught me how sentences are put together, because we're bad, really poor at that, and texting has not helped anything, I'm sure, right? This sentence says something, and we need to see what it says. It says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Definite article, the, the fellowship, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The apostles gave them two things they needed, their teaching and their fellowship. Here's what you need. You need to learn what Jesus has told us and will tell you, and you need to learn how Jesus has taught us to live. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, comma, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We could use that language for our prayer conversation. What do you mean by the definite article, the prayers? That's another day. This sentence is written meaning that the breaking of bread, in other words, eating meals and praying was what they did in fellowship. That the apostles taught them two things, what Jesus had said and how Jesus called them to live in community with one another. Then, this is how they lived out their community. They had meals together and they prayed together. I'm sure the apostles' teaching came up in those moments too. Hey, so we just heard this story about Jesus and he told this parable. I'm not sure I understand this parable. What do you think about this parable? I don't know. Let's ask Peter. He seems to know. He put his foot in his mouth a bunch of times. He's got to have the answer, right? 
They committed themselves to what they were told and how they were taught to live. We miss that. We miss the dependence upon one another, that that being a key piece of our faith, that it is something that is given to us and that it's given for us to use. So I'm going to read this again. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Here's how 3,000 people plus grew in their faith. They went smaller as they got larger. They began to meet in homes, which we'll see in just a second, around meals and prayed together. Now, if you're in a community group, you sign up for a community group, here's what I'm going to ask you. How much time do you guys spend talking and how much time do you spend praying? And we in America, I'll just be clean, stink at prayer. Because of this, we don't do a lot of it. Maybe we've treated it like something it's not. Prayer's super easy. The way I'm talking to you is the way you talk to God. If you're doing it in King James English, I'd say you're doing it wrong. Right? How much do we gather together and just have a meal together and pray together and talk about Jesus together? Super important. That's what they did. That's how they managed the 3,000 mass conversion that were added to their little tiny church. Intentional community. I've got this note for you on the screen. All these notes, by the way, are in the app. Uh, I hope you have them. The young church relationally gathered together in small groups because the disciples of Jesus taught them to do what Jesus had done with them. Living out what Jesus commanded them to do in his absence caused them to grow closer as they grew larger. Again, just look around a little bit and figure out, like, I can't know everybody like that. But I can know a good 20, 25 people really well. I can for sure commit to a community group that has 12 to 20 people in it and love them and know them. Know their struggles, know their strengths, know what they need, know what they want, know what, what God is doing inside their lives. Know where are the, the, the points where I can contribute to them and they can contribute to me. What are those things? I can't know that about all of you. And we're not even that big of a church. But it's impossible. It's hard for me to get names straight, right? Verse 43, and, it came, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Once you hear that last part, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. All things in common does not mean they'd like the same football teams, right? That's never going to happen. That would take a whole other gospel, right? <laughs> what they had in common was they, had, they shared in the joys of life and the struggles in life. They shared in their needs, and they shared in their abundance. They had all things in common. What they had was everything they brought to the table, they didn't consider theirs. Instead, it was the communities. And whoever had need, they just cared for the need. When we talk about the church, and we talk about giving, we talk about income, we talk about caring for the community, and sometimes there's just a, a simpler, central way to do that, and it happens all throughout the New Testament, that they give to the church, and the church takes care of people, but inside these small group communities, they just cut the middleman out because they don't need them. They just care for each other. Whoever has a need, we take care of it. Whoever has enough, helps. Whoever has nothing, does whatever they can. They had all things in common. They quit thinking what they have was theirs, and they started seeing it as God's, and that God had commanded them to love one another in this community, 
And so they considered all these things to just be enough for the community. Whatever they need, they'll, they'll take care of. They stopped thinking it was just there. So one more note, true community. The church built true relationships only possible in smaller groups and began to love one another. The result was death of independence and growth of community dependence. Having all things in common meant by sharing the joys and burdens of life and the challenges of growing in faith, they became a family. See, my, my wife doesn't have a financial need that I don't share in. We have a need or we have enough, but we have it together. My health, her health, whatever restrictions, whatever joys, whatever struggles, whatever mourning, we do it together because we're married. God has made us one. And God has called us to quit seeing ourselves as so individual, which is an American Western trait, and to start finding ourselves in a community, right? Those of you that are Asian come from an Asian background, and Eastern culture is entirely different. You come over here, you're going to adapt, but otherwise you're known by your family name before your individual name. Why? Because family is more important than the individual. You contribute to the whole. There's some ups to that and there's some downs to that. The honor-shame culture is a problem. You don't want to dishonor the family. You bring shame on everybody else around you. I mean, there's not all of it's great, but there is something to be learned by the idea that the community is more important than the individual. And that the individual is given over to the community, that they're dependent upon the community. And that they have all things in common. 46, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to the proceeds of all as any had need. That's what we talked about last week. Is this seeing that our income, our, our finance, those are God's, reshapes what we're to do. And I'm not asking anybody to sell anything. The leaders in this church didn't ask them to sell anything. But as they gathered together, they saw the needs and they felt a different sense of belongings, that, that, that this was for a community. They began to share in the needs. As they felt those needs, they contributed to those needs as they could. It says this, I'm going to hear it again, verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. What they had was a reciprocal community. That's your next note. Modern American churchgoers have taken a view of small groups that is primarily for their own growth. The early church to community life as giving themselves to others as well as receiving. Through this, they fulfilled the commandment of Jesus to love one another. I think I got a little wordy there. Let me just say it this way. Most of you think of small groups as something that you can go and grow in this group. They're like, I can go and I can gain from this. Like I, or you don't go because you're like, why do I need that? Like, I'm good on my own. The first century church didn't see it as just a place of receiving. They saw it as a command of giving, that they would give themselves to one another. And this went far beyond possessions or incomes. But they would give of their time to one another. They would care for one another. They were a community together. So if you're here and you're not a part of a community group, let me suggest to you, maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's for you to give to. To other people. Maybe it's for you to lead and disciple other people, or maybe you need something from them. You just don't know it yet. But community needs to be more about giving and less about just taking. And yes, there are going to be times we all need. That's what community's for. But there are also going to be times where we get to contribute to the overall health of the community. And again, hear me, I'm talking way beyond finances, but sharing in the joy of life and the mourning of life 
partnering together in the raising of children and families, partnering together in the discipleship of one another, growing in our faith, all those things, caring for the needs of people, people who lose their jobs and they're in need of something, or they're single moms or single dads and they're struggling through life, and you can help. Community is you being called to love one another by Jesus. It is not just you taking what you think is beneficial to you. Church is the same way. Many, most of you show up to see what you can get from church. Rather than what are you giving to the community of faith? Again, way beyond finances. We'll prove that today, no matter how many times I say it, that as soon as we start to go into worship, half the church will walk out. Not half, that's an overstatement, but you get my point, right? Not a pet peeve of mine at all, right? Oh, I come and heard the message, I'm good, I'm going to go get coffee and talk to my buddy over there. Well, you're disrupting your buddy too. Maybe he needs to worship. And maybe God deserves your worship. What did you come to give today? Or are you just here to take? Bless you. If you're not a follower of Jesus, all we want you to do is receive. We want you to hear about the love of God, the sacrifice of Christ, and that we want to be a community to you. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're here to contribute. I need you, and you need me. You don't need me as a pastor. Maybe that's true, too. You need me as an individual, just as I need you. Verse 45, And that day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Temples and homes. Temple was their church. Home was where they met, had meals, prayed, and learned. Right? They did both. Verse 47, Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added their number day by day, those who were being saved. In verse 46, they received glad and generous, it said. They didn't just receive, we hear that part. But the generous part is them giving, is them giving back to the community. And they were joyful to do it. And God honored that, and it says that the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. I want to close with just a couple verses one that we've already read, when we put it on the screen, I want to close with a couple of verses and talk about communities. As we launch our community groups this week, I believe this week, most of them will be doing like a potluck, doing something to just kind of gather together, get to know each other. Community group curriculum starts the following week, and that we will, we will all be doing the same thing and kind of growing along the same lines together, doing some of the same things together. But I want to just cast just kind of some idea of what that would be, a little vision around what community groups should look like. So the first one is out of Acts 2.42 and 5.42. They devoted themselves, the apostles teaching the fellowship, to the breaking of bread of prayers, and in every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So there's this temple aspect, there's this church, and then there's homes. As they gathered together in a smaller community, it was about fellowship. They broke a lot of bread, they ate a lot of meals together. For some of you, that's really good news. I like to eat, right? <laughs> and they would pray, and they would talk about Jesus. It wasn't rocket science. We do that with people. We hang out, we have a meal, we talk, we do whatever. We're just saying, let's do that around the community of faith. Can I have the next slide? The slide before that. Should say this, community, growing in our faith. We gather together in community groups, as did the church in Acts, around the values of learning, learning discipleship, community, and prayer. For 2,000 years, growing and maturing in the faith has happened in homes and around shared meals. 2,000 years, the church has been doing this. 
We have not grown out of it. It's still the way that we can do it. Next slide, the verse. Hebrews says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another in love to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if you are the person reading this verse, are you being called to give or receive in this passage? You know I got all day, right? They're like, I want to watch the Pro Bowl. I'll give you the answer. All right. Let us stir one another up. Let us go there and cause growth in faith and other. Let us stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, not trying to go your own way, do this independent thing, show up at church, sit somewhere, not connect with anybody, don't do anything else, and go home. But encouraging one another. It says, as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing, as you see the end of everything, the consummation of everything, where Jesus fixes everything, all the more. So in 2,000 years, we haven't grown out of it. If anything, we should be growing it more. Next slide, the, the slide itself. Like embers gathered together in a fire, a small group community is the way we can keep the fire of our faith growing. You guys know the image, right? You guys cook with charcoal, you get that thing, get it all lit, get it all hot together. It sits there, everything stays hot. You remove one of the embers, one of the coals, you set it aside, that one will burn out before the community. If you don't know that, that's the image. And it's true. Those coals stayed together, will stay hot for a long time. Once you spread them out, if you remove one from the pile, it will die on its own. Our temperature is back up, please. Our temperature is raised by others. We stoke the fire in them as well. An ember who is separated from the others always grows cold quickly. Want to stay hot in your faith. You want to grow your faith. You want to be included in a community of faith. Because on days you're having a bad day, their job is to lift you up. On days they're having a bad day, it's your job to keep them hot. Like those embers in a pile. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 is the next verse. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Many of you that have done discipleship around here have memorized that verse. I want you to see this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gift of Jesus is the gospel. It's grace. It's unmerited favor with God, right? The love of God, God who loved us first, has given us a love for one another. Those are gifts given by Jesus, given by God. This is a triune verse, right? And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The gift of the Holy Spirit here is community. It's the resource that God has given you that you're called not to bury. Next slide, and we'll close with this. God has given us a gift to the Holy Spirit, fellowship, community. What God has given us is a valued resource we are not to bury. Our job is to take the treasure of community and grow it as a faithful steward of this precious gift. Your job is to love one another as Jesus has loved you. Your job is to grow a community of believers. When I say grow, it doesn't have to be numbers. Grow deeper. Always be welcoming someone from the outside who needs community. But going deep with a group of people and growing that by reaching other people is what Jesus has created us to do. And a gift of the Holy Spirit is community, fellowship. And what Jesus has given us, it is not our treasure to bury. Let's pray. God is